we live in a society that is organized around these cultural identities. They're organized around how much money you have, right? What you look like, what you sound like. That is the reality that everyone lives in. And to talk about that as our reality should not be feared, right? You should actually be looking to usher in something that is more equitable. And that means you've got to make space for the discomfort. You've got to make space to handle it. And that's why the emphasis, again, for me is facilitation. How do you respond when students are like uh, really upset uh, and having real issues with the conversations around race, whether it's a race or any identity? What's your response like? What's going on, y'all? Welcome to Help Students Win, where we talk about all things education. My name is Jordan Davis. I'm a professional speaker, founder of JD Speaks, and your podcast host. And today, we have an amazing guest with us today. Uh, we have Dr. Erin Watley. She is a DEIJ consultant and the founder of Intersect Consulting. She's an associate professor and chair of the Communication and Cinema Department at McDaniel College. She is the host of the Black American Film Festival, and I've taken more classes with Dr. Watley than any other educator in my life. Oh, like, wow. did you know that, Dr. Watley? I've taken four no. classes. No, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, dating all the way back to undergrad at uh, McDaniel College. You know, I call you my mentor, and you're one of my favorite people in the academy. So, thanks for you know joining the show today. Well, hype me up, hype me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I had to. You know, yeah. I had to. And, and and Laurel's very own too. Um, did you know I live in Laurel, right? Did no, I didn't know that? that. Yeah, I'm I'm zooming in from from Laurel uh, today. Um, okay. So Lauren and I moved here about six months ago, and I'm really enjoying the area. So. What part? Uh, so I'm right along Main Street. Okay, I'm so right you're in the Main PG Street side. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, right. I'm Laurel's in four counties, which is interesting. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's in PG, okay. Howard, Montgomery, and Anne Arundel. And uh, I was right off of, or my parents are still right off of uh, Route 1 and Whiskey Bottom Road. So. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Real quick, favorite thing about Laurel? Um, It has everything. It has everything. It's a suburb that has everything, and I really enjoyed growing up there. And uh, let me think, something I really love about Laurel, uh, the Thai restaurant. That's uh, mm, what's it called? What's it called? It's called a. Uh, it's called Thai at Laurel. It has yeah, a. Yeah. <laughs> it has a. It has. A, and I love Thai at Laurel. Yeah, yeah. yeah it has a. Uh, there, there's several in the area because there's a Thai in Silver Spring too that's owned by the same company. But that's mm -hmm. one of the best Thai places um, in that area, in my opinion. And I'm kind of a Thai snob, so yeah. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, and Lauren will be proud too. She'll be listening to this and like probably jump out of her seat when she hears you say that. So um, that that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, excuse us for our very local Maryland. Oh, yeah, that's talk. very that's hyper specific. Listen to it, hyper specific. Uh, but I appreciate us getting into it. So uh, I know you're like I said, you're a professor at McDaniel College, and I remember you when I first took uh, intercultural communication, which you which was which was my first class um, that I took. I remember you talking about the relationship kind of between research and teaching. And so I'm curious to know, like, which one was most interesting to you starting out in your higher ed career? Did you kind of like start in the research and then entered into the classroom? Or did you already know that you wanted to teach, that you wanted to, you know, teach in, in you know, in higher ed? 
Well, a PhD is training essentially for research. Uh, and so going through the PhD process, I learned about research and how to do it. But all the while I did it, I knew that I was not a pure researcher. So I always knew that I wanted to apply. Um, and I, I, I didn't know, I guess, when I was going through my PhD program, where exactly I wanted to apply that work. Uh, but practice for me has always been the important thing. And sometimes I'm even frustrated with the nature of academia because it is so theory and research focused. Um, and they don't give the same uh, weight of like acknowledgement or respect. And even when it comes to like leveling up in the world of academia, a lot of times research comes first. Um, that's not exactly the same for McDaniel, but at bigger institutions it is. And I think practice, like if people can't use what they're learning and if they don't know how to access it, um, I don't know. To me, it has always felt like a disservice. And that's been a tension that I've had with my own instructors and mentors at times. Uh, but I always knew that I wanted to make whatever I was learning research-wise applicable to people who maybe were not in that research environment. So teaching was the first extension of that. And I really think that all the other stuff that I do um, is an extension of sharing what's like more like theory heavy or academia heavy with, uh, with the masses, right? Like people outside of the ivory tower, essentially. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And even considering that not only do colleges and universities not value teaching to the same extent as they do research, but a lot of colleges don't even have systems or rubrics in place to measure what good teaching is. It's like, how do you even define yeah. good teaching? And when it happens, how do you even you know go about incentivizing it and all of those different things? Yeah, um, there's so. not really a standard. And uh, truth be told, professors go into the world of teaching without official teacher training for the most part. Like we have mentors, you know, we have like workshops and everything, but the PhD preparation process is research focused. We're not taught to teach, which is a little bit ironic uh, given we're like the highest level of teaching when it comes to education systems. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect segue kind of into difficult conversations in the classroom, because I'm thinking about the teachers and educators that are listening to this that are like, I'm just an international affairs expert, mm -hmm. or like, I'm just a, a science teacher, like what, I don't have any expertise around racism or xenophobia or any of these topics that you're asking me to prioritize in my classroom. What would you say to some of those educators that kind of have those thoughts about what their expertise is in and their discomfort in providing, frankly, the opportunity for students to be able to engage in those kinds of discussions? Um, for somebody coming from that position, I think it's really important to relinquish a little bit of the professor thing that happens where it's, I have to be the absolute expert when I bring something to the classroom. You know, I think a starting point is I don't know, but I want to learn, right? Um, I don't know, and I will talk with my students about this is an area of concern, but maybe I'm learning and growing and kind of breaking down that power barrier sometimes that exists 
between like, I have to know a hundred percent. So, you know, for people who want to engage, you know, these like difficult cultural topics in their classroom, but they're feeling like they don't know where to start. Uh, sometimes it is, let's start with, I don't know. And then where do I need to go to get resources to share this better, including tapping, tap, excuse me, tapping into the resources that are actually in your classroom in the form of your students. Um, what can you learn from your students, right? How can you allow that conversation to exist? And then when you sort of relinquish the need to be the topic expert, then what you focus on is the management part, right? Like the facilitation part, um, how it is that you, you know, hold and allow for that conversation to take place that then becomes your, um, your task, right? And then the topic wise, you might be learning along with. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a shift in teaching philosophy, especially for people who are in higher ed perhaps, but, um, that's my, that's my take on it. Yeah. And a lot of what I'm hearing in that explanation is getting educators to decolonize their definition of expertise and what yep. it means to be an expert and yep. seeing students lived experiences as expertise. And some students don't even identify with that themselves, right? Like mm -hmm. they themselves might say, oh, like I'm not an expert. Like yep. they're, they're expecting the traditional power dynamics. And so there's often even some pushback from students when yep. we try to engage them in difficult topics. And I guess we'll talk a little bit more about uh, what it looks like to navigate that that pushback, both from the student side and then also I've heard from faculty too that department chairs catch wind of faculty trying to introduce this into the classroom. And there's even some resistance uh, from department chairs as faculty try to do this work. But I want yeah. to hear a little bit about, yeah, no, did you have I mean, an the, idea? I was gonna say the, the principle is not new. Right. Like this is really just critical pedagogy. Um, and, you know, you could look to like Pablo Freire, uh, Pedagogies of the Oppressed as one of like the hallmarks of uh, that teaching philosophy. And it's really based in teachers are students and students are teachers. And you lean into that. Um, that's a really oversimplification. But fundamentally, that's that's what you're also acknowledging. It's a um, it's relinquishing some of that power and also helping your students to acknowledge their power, right? Their, their contribution. Cause I think, uh, uh, it's concerning for me sometimes where I have conversations with students and how, um, how disconnected they feel from their like power and ability to affect change or to like to, to, um, to be influential where they're at, at that moment as a student, as a young adult. And actually it's like, you have a, a lot of potential and a lot of power in that moment, even before you like grow up or get things settled. Um, and so that's the shift, that's a shift to encourage. And it's not new, it's not new by any means. Yeah, and I think empowering students is so key in this time as we head, as we're in an election year, a lot of students don't feel like their vote matters or that their advocacy is making a difference in politics and we have a lot of conversations around climate change and climate despair and students feeling like they can't do anything about the environment right and so and you couple that with the youth mental health crisis that we're in right now I mean the U.S. Surgeon General said last year like we are in a crisis around this and so I think equity-centered conversations trauma-informed conversations and student 
mental and psychological health really go hand in hand. You yes. Know, in this. Yes, absolutely. Those are, I mean, those are big things. And part of my um, working philosophy and pedagogy is uh, it's okay to start small. Like that's where meaningful and lasting change has to come from. It has to come from small steps, right? So if people don't believe like the philosophy, if people don't believe that they have the potential to change their own environment or their circumstance, and I don't mean this in a like, uh, you know, if you believe it, you can achieve it and that's all it takes kind of way, like systems are in place and they are, they operate as hierarchies, but also um, those systems are supported by people and individual choices and individual behaviors at exponential scale. So if that's the case, then to disrupt that at exponential scale, you have to seed the ideas of change is possible, like it's actually possible. And to have people believe it, sometimes even at that starting point, I get pushback, right? It's like, no, things can't change. It's too big. It's too big. It's too big. It's like, but you can change your relationship with your partner. You know, like you can change your relationship with yourself. If that's possible, then how come bigger change isn't possible? And that's like a bigger conversation, but that's where, that's the starting point because it's more tangible and it's more like approachable. I have a story on that that's connected to one of your classes. Oh yeah, what, what? So this, so this was my first semester of my sophomore year at McDaniel College in your intercultural communication class. And you had us break out into small groups. I would say this class was about maybe 20 to 25 yeah. students, somewhere yeah, between there. And we were in breakout groups of four and five. And there was a white male student. I don't remember what the prompt was for these small groups, but I remember at one point in the conversation, he said, yeah, I just don't watch politics because politics doesn't affect me. I was like, oh, okay. So this is where we starting, right? <laughs> this is where we starting. So, so this was uh, in the beginning of the semester and obviously you know I, I i talk with faculty all the time about not putting people in a in a vacuum or in a time capsule right like if you say something in a moment especially early on in the semester you have the opportunity to grow from that and develop your thoughts you know after that so um but yeah i just remember that really sticking out to me and that was what six years ago six mm -hmm. seven years ago when i heard that and so um yeah, like this idea that students not only try to distance themselves or even try to overlook the privileges that they have, but then as you're saying too, some students don't even feel like if they tried to engage in some sort of advocacy or change work, they don't think that things are going to change or that at least they don't feel responsible for yeah. trying to evoke change. I feel like that's definitely a big thing. Oh, yeah. There's a real disconnect between how connected we actually are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what is, cause I want to make it like plain and simple for the folks that are listening to this, like, how do you see integrating these types of conversations, transforming your students? Like, what is the value that you see as an educator for your students? Like how do students who come in at week one, what do they look like in week 14? Like, what is it actually doing for the students that you have these discussions with? Uh, being able to have real time engagement, with different ideas and also processing their own ideas, like students processing their own ideas, uh, in my perspective, is not, has the potential, 
and this doesn't this isn't a guarantee but it has the potential to be so transformative and is transformative within a student's own experience right so if they're like oh i i recall what this felt like right when i heard somebody else talk about um you know their um like their racial identity or their understanding um, about how the world is very different for them as a, a queer person or a person with a disability. Like I heard it and then I had to listen to it, not just as a soundbite, right? And not just as uh, what somebody else said about, you know, queer people or Muslim people or any identity that's marginalized. Um, when they take it in on their own, and then they have to process it. And then they have to come and be in community with those individuals over and over again over the course of the semester. Um, it gives them a, a, I don't know, I think it allows them to take ownership. And then maybe, you know, maybe you as a student who has been in those classes um, can say more about it. You know, I, I would, I'll just make the connection to myself, right? I do this kind of work because as we were just talking about at the top of the show, I grew up in Laurel, Maryland, a pretty diverse community, even when I was growing up in the early 2000s. Um, I grew up with a lot of exposure to difference around me, like in the school I went to, in the church I was a part of, in the community that I lived in, like I just grew up with a lot of it. And so I had instilled in me like, oh, engaging with people and like learning about this uh, and understanding and like having it as a part of my daily life is important. And it really formed my, um, my level of like grace and understanding to people who didn't have the same experience as I did. And then when I got out into the world, right? Like when I started going to, um, when I went to college, I went to a big, I went from a small private school to a big college. Uh, University of Maryland. When I was exposed to more people, I realized that the experience that I had with engaging a lot of difference was unique in ways that I didn't realize, like when it came to race, when it came to gender, when it came to um, uh, economic class, like I just had, I had had more exposure and I was like, oh, everybody hasn't had this. And so what? And that sort of planted a seed for like, I want to help facilitate engagement across and through difference with more people so that it's natural, right? I did this class called Difficult Conversations because from my intercultural communication class, I heard so much feedback of, this is great to learn about, but how do I do it? Like, how do I actually do it? Like, I don't have opportunities to engage with different people um, at scale. And like, um, I was like, oh, okay. So like, we just need a class where we do it. Like I set it up and then you guys come and talk to people about different kind of stuff. Okay. I'll set that up. I've done, I created a whole class around it. Uh, but that was like, uh, people just need the opportunity to engage and engage in real time. Uh, there's advantages to engaging with like distance, but also to be able to come back, ask questions, reflect, come back, ask questions, reflect, come back, come back, ask questions, reflect, and also think about what that means for your world. Um, 
it's a very rich way of learning because it goes back to that practice part that I was talking about at the very beginning, right? It, that's the practice. Uh, and when people get more comfortable with that, then the hope is that they're more comfortable doing it outside of a classroom environment. So many of my assignments, and Jordan can attest to this, is like, yeah, do this thing, but then talk to somebody else outside of class about it. Or like, go have an experience outside of class. Uh, it's just to get people more comfortable with doing the connecting thing that we've in many ways become separated from. I know that that was long and rambling. If you want to re-ask the question and be like, can you summarize it in one sentence? Do that. But um, yeah, that's that's where it comes from. And that's what I think it contributes is is in the doing. And what we need more of is the doing of interacting with one another through really tough stuff. As you said, wellness, politics, climate, all those sorts of things, the conversation around them constantly is like, we're so divided. Look at how polarized things are. So if we are so divided- And that people can't change. Exactly. You know, because of the polarization, people don't even, they feel like they're wasting breath even having the conversation with them because we're so divided and they feel like people aren't capable of changing. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, I'll stop. And yeah, and I guess- on the on the topic of change too, especially as an undergraduate student, and I definitely fell into this bucket. Undergrad students, once you get the ball rolling as far as like caring about a particular social issue, there's a level of patience that's involved, mm. right? And you talked about starting small and acknowledging the small wins that you have and like the little micro opportunities that you have for advocacy. And mm-hmm. so understanding that if you have a conversation with somebody about one of these topics and they're not receptive the first time, or it doesn't go as smoothly as you thought it would go, it doesn't mean that it was a disaster, right? It doesn't mean that it was a waste of time. It's believing in the fact that I'm not the only person that will ever have this conversation with Dr. Watley, but my contributions, my deep listening, skills. So being able to listen to Dr. Wadley when we have this conversation, the empathy that I displayed mm-hmm. over time, that person's going to reflect on that experience. And then a week from now, she's going to have another conversation on the same topic. Yeah. And then she's going to reflect on that experience again. And so what we're having is students kind of decenter themselves from the work and be humble and say, okay, I'm a small part of this, but my small interaction over time is what's going to lead to change. And so that's kind of the conversation that we have with students too. It's like the practice of it is the work. Like having the conversation is the work. I hear students say all the time, um, you know, all we do is talk about it, right? Um, but there's a quote and I'm blinking uh, on, on where this comes from, forgive me, but we can't solve a problem until we talk about it first. Like we can't solve a problem unless we know the problem that we're trying to solve. And so part of it is developing an understanding as these topics shift in real time, mm-hmm. as new terms get formed, like critical race theory, like all of these different things that are coming up. But at the same time, having the conversation in class, the comfort that you built with being uncomfortable in those environments can lead you to where someone says something really interesting at the family function. Yeah. You could be like, hey, that was really interesting. Say more about that. Yeah. Right? And now it's where, you know, if you hadn't had that classroom opportunity, maybe you wouldn't have taken that step. And so that's kind of the part of the transformation that that I'm particularly passionate about. It's like getting students to see themselves 
as powerful and influential in it, but also decentered from it and like really cultivating like a community understanding of it. So yeah, yeah, it's um, you know, it's planting seeds. It's planting yep. seeds very much. And also, you know, it's sometimes when it comes to these conversations, the the focus is on how do I change somebody else? You know, like how do I say the thing mm-hmm. to get a person to understand my perspective, right? Or how do I say the thing to like get this person to not be so uh I don't know, radical or like aggressive, however it's formed. But really the practice is for you, right? Like the practice, you can't go in to a conversation expecting to change the minds of the people you're interacting with. You don't have control over what they're bringing to the situation, but your willingness to engage, that's important. You know, in a world where it's like, oh, I tried, I tried once and I'm disengaging. It's like, no, you got to try again, right? What did you learn from that engagement? What is your um, decision to try again or withdraw have to do with your background, right? And what you learned, right? Like, it's like turning the turning the thing around. It's like, you think this conversation is about everyone else and what's going on out there. It's really about you, right? And so you practicing, thinking, deep listening, like you were talking about, um, that is what our, that's what's actually within our um, capability of control. And I think fostering that, within students and educators alike, because educators need this kind of practice too, um, is where the challenge lies. It's what I want to see more of. And it's why I make some of the choices that I do. Yeah. And kind of on that note, I think critical pedagogy is also very connected to engaged pedagogy more generally. And also think there are even some tones of like career and technical education in there, right? Because like, I think of teachers and professors who are like, I want to teach my students the skills that are going to serve them well in the workplace. And like, that's kind of like their ethos. When, when you contextualize what students are learning in their future professional environments, they're going to come across diverse perspectives. They're going to come across diverse people. Even if you're a computer programmer, I just came from an education technology conference a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And one of the big messages that was stated over and over again in, in these workshops is trying to destigmatize what it means to be a coder or a computer programmer. Mm-hmm. Like when mm-hmm. we think about coding and computer programming, we think of this person with a laptop and like they're hunched over typing all day mm-hmm. uh, when coding is so much more than that. And there's so much collaboration and teamwork and critical thinking and problem solving it. And so being able to have discussions with the people that you work with and more importantly uh care for the people that you work with um is is so key in having a difficult discussion whether it's in a sociology class or a computer science class it's important for your students because not only is it changing them in real time as they reflect on it but when they go into their professions and when they even reflect on their own professional journey they can be able to stop and say okay, am I serving others? Am I taking care of the people that I'm working with? And do I believe in my own theory of change? Yep. Like, and how is that evolving over time? Yep. Yeah, so much of what I, uh, even conversations that I've had and trainings that I've done is culture and humanity is always in the room, no matter what skills, trade, whatever you're teaching with. If you are related to engaging with people, if you are a person, 
then having a better grasp on these sort of cultural conversations is to your benefit. It's not a, you know, people are dismissive of communication as like, oh, it's a soft skill, you know, like, oh, like public speaking, like, you know, people talk about it as if it's not something that's really important when actually it's foundational to everything, you know, everything in a human society. And so that means that it should be taken much more seriously. You know, how we engage with each other should be much, uh, should be thought about with much more intention, especially when we're talking about like oppression, we're talking about marginalization, that sort of stuff. It's like, but it's usually the afterthought, right? Like some of the work I do with my consulting being asked about culture, you know, like, or to evaluate culture or, or to um, consider it, that's the end stage, right? It's like after the thing has already been formed, now tell us how we did on culture. And it's like, what'd you do before you started? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, that's a that's a big picture. Like, you know, if the whole system was changed, it would have been built in, right? It would have been built in and not the, not the last round of edits. Um, it's not a box at the end right, that you check and say, right. "Oh, culture, we got right, that." You know, right, so. right. We did our we did our culture check at the end, and it was like, "Okay, well, where are you coming from when you actually wrote it?" And you know, I've given feedback like that, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I, you said big picture. I want to get a little bit narrow here, yes, um, and talk about first before we get into like the actual pedagogical practice of facilitating difficult discussions. What was it like for you? the first time that you've done this in the classroom, right? Like think back to maybe one of the first classes that you've taught. I'm trying to also communicate to faculty who are newer to this work. Like what what was that experience like, you know, starting out and facilitating these types of conversations with students? Oh. It's, it's, um, it's a little bit daunting when you first start out because you are you're opening up you're opening yourself up to the unknown. You don't know how it's going to go. You know, there you, you just don't know. You don't know what people are going to bring to to the conversation. And so it's a little bit scary. I'll just leave it at that. It's a it's a little bit scary, but I always pair like if it's something feels um, you know a little bit unsure or you're a little bit scared of it, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. <laughs> you know, it's like why are you why are you doing it? And every time I check in with myself or like you know pedagogically speaking, looking at what people who I admire have done, uh, the reason behind it is grounded in something that I fully support and believe in and that pushes me through the fear and also I kind of release my ability like we're talking about what you can control I can't control the outcome I can just introduce the engagement practice and so I say this in my classes right like I might stir something up you know like but we only have an hour and a half and I'll be like hey we can't resolve this And you have to be okay with that. And I have to be okay with that as an instructor. You know, like you encourage people to go process it, go go write about it, go talk to a friend about it. 
Um, but in that classroom environment, you're not going to fix these big issues or problems, right? You're probably going to make them a little more confusing. You're probably going to introduce some like some culture shock to some people and you kind of just have to leave it there and encourage those people to take care of themselves in ways that the teacher maybe can't, you know, the teacher isn't the therapist, the teacher isn't, um, you know, the health professional. Point the students in those directions if they need it, but also that's, you won't be able to fix all those things. You just kind of have to be okay with it. But it is, it is definitely scary and it introduces a lot of uncertainty, but I, um, I don't know, I've just gotten more comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's a quote from a lovey Ajaye, who's an author. Um, she has a whole TED talk about getting comfortable with discomfort. So that's that's where I that's where I operate from. Yeah, I heard a I heard a faculty member in a meeting yesterday, um, Dr. Natsu Onoda Power. She got this from somewhere else, but it was really profound. Making our classrooms safe enough to be dangerous. Mm. And so I, I love that in the sense of danger obviously not in causing harm to yeah. the students, but safe enough to where students can feel discomfort and that they can take that discomfort and disruptiveness outside of the classroom to engage with it in connection with the real world, right? Yep. And so seeing the learning environment turning into something that's formative and constructive that students build together, that they feel like they can take out into the world and do something with, whether it's their ideas and they're connecting it to their personal lives or whether it's like literally a project or yeah. a curation of some sort that they create together that they can then go out and advocate for and things like that. Oh, absolutely. I love that. I love that quote. Yeah. Safe yeah, enough to yeah. be dangerous. Yeah. Now talk a little bit about how you set up your classroom or like set up your class to be conducive to difficult conversations? Uh, what does your community building look like? What does your assignment planning and conversation planning look like? Like talk a little bit about what you do before you even step into the classroom with the student. Well, my process is always is constantly evolving. Uh, and I'll just talk about what I've been evolving towards. Uh, first of all, it is so important to just establish classroom community and what you're talking about, like a sense of some safety and um, openness in that classroom community. And I have taken, for the classes that are especially discussion heavy, like intercultural or when I teach gender or difficult conversations, those first few weeks of class, I'm doing lots of uh, engagement, icebreaker, conversation um, activities and also asking students to show up, not to present information just from the text, but from their own personal lives and experiences. Um, you know, in difficult conversations in the, across the first few weeks, I do what I call um, informational interviews, or I forget the title, but it, it's like an informational interview where it's a reverse presentation where the student uh, comes and they they answer one question with like one sentence, right? It's and it's a question about themselves, like what's like what's a personal mantra you have or something like that, like a something that's revealing something about themselves, and they just answer that in one sentence. They stand at the front of the class, answer it in one sentence. Then 
there's five, six minutes where the class asks questions of that person to elaborate on that thing that they just shared, right? So it's, it's, the, it's the class demonstrating curiosity. It's also the person responding on the fly, but still talking about um, this thing that is personal to them. Uh, I usually let the students choose from like maybe three or four questions, which one they answer, and they range in um, levels of risk-taking. So some of them might be like, you know, like I said, a personal mantra you have or someone you admire, but some might require higher risk, uh, like when's the last time you cried uh, or tell us a secret, right? So like it, they can choose the level of vulnerability that they want to display, but the class then has to interact with that and give them feedback in real time. I see that as a community building um, sort of activity. I do things like um, making sure we establish uh, I don't call them classroom rules anymore, but I'll do things with like classroom agreements. Like what do we want to agree to together? And we put those, um, uh, those ideas together as a class, not just me bringing rules, but asking them, inviting them to contribute to how we want the classroom to run. Uh, I do things like in my intercultural class, we actually just did this this week in my intercultural class because I'm teaching it this semester. Uh, I have them do identity performances where they have to do something in the classroom that conveys an element of a cultural identity that they have. Uh, and they're not really supposed to do PowerPoint. They have to like do in the present, like show us a dance, sing us a song, uh, tell us a poem, uh, those sorts of things that are related to their identities. And again, getting feedback from their classmates in real time and reflecting on it. So I do a lot of community building work at the at the beginning, and I've only deepened that uh, that practice in my own teaching. I used to, <laughs> excuse me, I used to maybe only emphasize it heavy for a week, and now I'm into uh, this is week four of our semester. I'm into doing it. Uh, more and more for more time because I want that. And another important thing that I do is um, I am a part of the community. So I also model the kind of practices that I would like to see and encourage. So when it comes to like that interview you're talking about, I'll go first, right? And I usually pick one of the more vulnerable questions to um, show to the class. Um, when it comes to the... Um, cultural identity performances that we just did this week. The week before, I did my own performance, right? I did a poem and I talked about like, you know, um, where I felt vulnerable around like race or body size. And I, sh I show them, right? Like as a way of, this isn't just me setting it up and telling you to do it. I'm gonna do it with you. And what I realized um, I don't know, maybe a few years ago, I reached a, a point in time where I felt like I wasn't getting the depth that I wanted from my students consistently. And then I was like, that means I have to go deeper, right? Like that means mm -hmm. I have to be more vulnerable. Uh, mm -hmm. I have to actually, maybe the performance, like it became mechanical for me and it wasn't challenging for myself anymore. So I was like, okay, I have to reveal a little bit deeper. Again, this is my practice, not what everyone has to do. But I do think, and I've heard this feedback from students, that when it's modeled, uh, 
the students feel more comfortable to share. Uh, honestly, the presentations that I had this week from my intercultural class were some of the most vulnerable that I've had in my teaching career. Um, and I attribute that to a, a few different things, but like what the students brought, I was just really encouraged and impressed by. Uh, so it's lots of it's lots of community building in the early stages. When I'm thinking about assignments, uh, so many of my assignments are less about you telling me the content that we've covered in class, like reporting back or you know just saying, uh, you know what are the um, you know explain to me the intercultural I don't know cycle of uh, oh like describe to me an intercultural praxis model, right? Like it's less reporting and it's more, what do you think? What does this have to do with you? Uh, so many of my assignments, and I've actually gotten this feedback from my students, um, my assignments are hard to put into chat GPT, right? Like I had students ask me about AI and that kind of thing. And I was like, I'm for me in the kind of the, what I am asking and what I'm emphasizing, uh, chat GPT or AI can't tell you how you feel, right? And a lot of what I'm a lot of what I'm asking <laughs> is like I want to know how you are processing this. What does this have to do with your life? What does this have to do with the world that you live in? Uh, and use what we've gotten in class to highlight that. But I don't want to read a report that's just about a book that I assigned. I read the book. I know what's in the book. I don't need you to tell me what's in the book. I'm operating under the assumption that we know the content. What we don't know is you and your connection to the content. So, so many mm -hmm. of my activities or what I actually assess is built around students' ability to make that kind of connection. And where they lose, if they lose points, it's like you were too general right? Like you said, oh, like this is something that people could do. I was like, but I asked what you could do, right? Would you actually do this? And the students are like, no. And I was like, well, why'd you, why'd you, sure people could do it, but I want to know what actually you, Jordan, could do about this thing. And so my writing assignments, you know, my partnering assignments, a lot of them are uh, born from that spirit of connecting students to those sorts of things. And uh, yeah, that's where that's how I that's how I think about building because again I'm that's what I'm concerned about I'm concerned about how the students are engaging if they're able to engage uh, with each other through that process. Wow, I, I I could hear the listeners like taking out their 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 book and their pen and they're they're writing they're making notes and they got the bullets like that. This is like free professional development. Like this is so good and um, I I just want to say too that students are already making these connections when they're not in the classroom. Yes. So seeing the classroom as a space to where students can have support around that processing can be able to be almost like metacognitive about it. Yeah. Like what is hard for, like, why is it hard for me to learn this? Yes. Why is it important for me to learn this? Yes. Like those are the types of questions that, get students because students again we they say all the time like i want to do the thing i want to do it like those types of the answers to those types of questions are what determines whether students actually go out into the world and do it yes. or not right as yes. is what you're saying yes. and so it's like 
we need to treat the classroom as, you know, the, the students are thinking about it. It's not like you're bringing it to their doorstep. You're creating an environment to where not only is Jordan thinking about how he's processing it, but Jordan just heard from Ashley and Ashley shared this really cool thing about how she's processing it. Yeah. I said, wow, I never even thought that I could apply that lens to that thing. And now when you come out of the classroom, you have, again, the same knowledge. The knowledge doesn't change, but your relationship to it is what changes. So. Yes. And part of like when students are like taking notes and things like that, uh, I say what your classmates are saying is just as appropriate for you to take note of as what I've put on the board or on a PowerPoint slide. Right. Uh, I've started to ask more about, sure, say cite a source, but also cite something that happened in the classroom. Right. That relates to this, because that's also part of the learning experience. Uh, I also do more reminding that I only create part of the class environment. Right. Like I could be on my A game. I'm telling jokes. I got good energy, everything like that. If you're just sitting there like you know, typing, like looking away or whatever. I was like, you think this class is boring or you think this class isn't interesting? It's like, what energy are you bringing? Make it interesting. Exactly. Make it interesting. Exactly. It's like, it's like so. I, I can only do so much. I was like, you yeah. are partially responsible for the experience that you're having in class, right? If you're like, this isn't engaging. And what I also do, that means I also have to leave myself open to students giving me real feedback, right? Like, yeah hey, you talked for a long time today, Dr. Wiley. We're kind of like phased out. It's like, okay, respect. I take that, right? I'll, I'll take that. I'll work on, you know, doing more activities. Or like, we really like it when you do this. Um, you put us into small groups instead of just asking us to talk out into the big group. That makes me participate more. So I, I like, I try to switch things up more, but also I am frequently reminding them, it's like, okay, the energy's not here. It's like, I know it's not me. <laughs> like I'm bringing... The, some energy. And on days where I'm low energy, I tell the class, I was like, you guys, I'm tired today, right? I need some more energy from you. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty open about that, right? Like it's been a hard week. Like this is what's going on with me. Uh, can you help me, right? Like, can you help me to, to help continue to push this conversation forward? So again, it's that kind of breaking of the wall and the reminder that like, I'm a person, <laughs> you know, I'm a person that also yeah. fluctuates in energy and, um, and uh, uh, ability, but I'm there to still help them engage and remind them that that responsibility is on them. It's like, do you know the person sitting next to you? You know, like you might be irritated if I don't know their name, but do you know, do you know their name, right? Or that I don't know your name, but do you know the name of the person next to you, right? Have you asked them when you're talking about, uh, oh, this person over there said, I'll be like, who said that? It's like, I don't know their name. It's like, ask them their name, mm. right? And so like in the middle yeah. of class, it might be week yeah. five, six. Sorry, can you remind me of your name? They say their name. You know, it's like, I want each other. I want you to call each other, you know, so you know the person who you're talking about, not just them over there, right? I, I really like this thing that Jordan said, right? And so that also helps with um, with the in-classroom community is giving some of that responsibility back to the students, Right. And I think a lot of students, especially coming out of COVID, especially, I don't know, just in the, the way that they're asked to engage now, they're not asked to engage in that way in the classroom with enough frequency. So it's not it's not their practice. Right. They they come in, they sit down, they talk. I have so many students who have not taken who like hadn't taken comm classes or just hadn't taken classes with me. And they're like, 
day one, day two, they're like, I've talked more in this class than I have all year, <laughs> you know, or in my whole major, right? Like I take classes in another major. I've never been asked to participate this much. And I don't even think... And, and, and for the listeners, McDaniel College is a tiny college. Yeah. Like what the class size is what? Like average 15 students max? Yeah, so, 15 to 20 probably at this point. Yeah. Yeah, for especially for comm classes. But again, you know, people are like, oh, I just sit in my other classes. I won't say the majors, but I'll sit in my other classes and we just come in, we sit, we take notes, we take our exams and quizzes and we leave. And that to me is a little bit, it just runs counter to what I like to encourage. And so I'm like, no, I, I want you to talk and you're, what you have to offer is really valuable. And we miss components of our ability to have an in-depth conversation when you're not here, right? I don't have attendance policies anymore. Like I don't penalize people for not coming to class just based on attendance, but I remind them when you're not here, we miss your voice, right? Our, our conversation is uh, less rich when you're not here for the classroom uh, for each other. And so, you know, I just sprinkle those reminders. And for the most part, my attendance isn't horrible you know it, it waxes and wanes but i find most people show up and they say that they try to make a make it intentional to show up for class yeah yeah the students are definitely important to each other and one of the most important things that i've learned so far this year is when we talk about power dynamics in the classroom we often talk about the power that the professor or the instructor has over students, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's usually like the traditional dynamic that we see. Uh, but I'm starting to learn more about how complex that relationship is, especially today where, you know, you'll read articles in the Washington Post or even like a local newspaper about a community college professor getting fired for something that they said in the classroom related to race or religion or the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that's happening right now are like trying to do this. And I feel like a lot of those mistakes are made when, kind of going back to an earlier point that you said, like faculty, it's not about you sharing your opinion, right? Like it's not about you centering what you think with your students. It's about providing support around the things that students are already thinking about and like facilitating a conversation. So I guess I, I wanted to ask you, do you perceive your work as risky? Is this something that you ever think about as far as, you know, if I say the wrong thing, what could happen? Or like, what if a student reports me to the provost for something that I said, or like a conversation that I tried to facilitate? Do you see your own work as, as risky? Uh, yeah, probably. I probably, um, but I also kind of, hold on, this truck is moving outside my door. Uh, so I do think that there is risk involved. I do think that when we look at the way the educational institutions have responded, I'll say harshly to people engaging in these kinds of conversations, that is, a, I don't know, a sign of how much we're not used to engaging with a lot of difference. Um, my experience though is 
that I have been at an institution and I've been in institutions where my work has been encouraged, you know, full stop. That hasn't, my experience has not been having to operate under the cover of like trying to be, uh, you know, like sneaky, like work around, you know, those sorts of things. I'm, I'm not teaching in Florida or Texas or something like that, where they actually are putting forth legislation that would really um, curtail the kind of conversations that I could have. Uh, and I teach in higher education also for that reason to have more freedom and flexibility, because even in Carroll County, where uh, McDaniel College is at, they've had, you know, issues with, um, you know, having like the LGBTQ flag and like having these, com having books uh, related to race and sexual orientation, that sort of thing. Uh, I stayed out of secondary education because I wanted more control. So I've also made choices that have put me in environments where it's more encouraged, but on its own, is it risky? Yes. I'm talking about disrupting systems of power. Ultimately, that's the, that's the goal is disrupting systems of power and particularly hierarchies of oppression. And what do we know about systems and hierarchies as they relate to power? They protect themselves. Power protects power, okay? And so when that is seen as a threat, then the system will respond accordingly. But uh, that's, the nature, that's the nature of what this is. And every, every kind of conversation doesn't have to be, uh, as incendiary as what some people have, uh, gotten caught up in and in trouble. And actually, I think that when you start small, you make way for the conversations or the engagement to happen, uh, in ways that are not like, okay, this is a biology class, but today we're talking about Palestine and Gaza. We're talking about, you know, the Sudan crisis, and we're just starting with the big thing. Uh, I think that when you start with the small things and you build up, uh, you practice the skills that are required for additional disruption, and those can build upon each other. Okay, so uh, what's needed and, you know, I in our pre-talk, we talked a little bit about, like, institutional support and things like that. Uh, what's needed is people who are in positions of power to allow for these conversations to take place, to not be afraid of them, right? Talking about race and identity are not detrimental. Um, we live in a society that is organized around these cultural identities. They're organized around how much money you have, right? What you look like, what you sound like. That is the reality that everyone lives in. And to talk about that as our reality should not be feared, right? You should actually be looking to usher in something that is more equitable. And that means you've got to make space for the discomfort. You've got to make space to handle it. And that's why the emphasis, again, for me is facilitation. How do you respond when students are like uh, really upset uh, and having real issues with the conversations around race, whether it's a race or any identity? What's your response like? That's at an institutional level. I think institutions aren't really prepared to be uh, intentional and thoughtful in a way that supports 
marginalized groups uh, because they're looking to protect themselves. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's controversial, but I'm just feeling like saying it. Uh, I am not here to protect institutions. I'm here to talk about people, right? And I'm here to help people experience more freedom, more liberation. uh, And what that looks like in relationship to institution, I don't know. But if we're talking about institutional support, you should be pushing your support in the direction of more freedom, more equity, uh, because otherwise you're just perpetuating what we're already in. And that's what people keep trying to, to break out of, right? If, if everybody who's marginalized and oppressed was like, Hey, we just want to live. And people were like, okay, go live. And we were done. We, I wouldn't have a job, right? I wouldn't be doing my job <laughs> this way, right? Is yeah, if, yeah. if everybody was just like, okay, we're gonna let people live their lives. All right. <laughs> It would be easy, Train right? Like but but yeah. we keep resisting and we don't recognize that our resistance shows up in really small uh, choices and ways that might be as simple as like, uh, this is just uncomfortable. I don't know how to manage this. Uh, I don't want to keep having this conversation as it relates to X, Y, and Z groups. I'm worried about offending, all that kind of thing. It's like, no, you need to step up your response ability. You need to work on your mm-hmm. own uh ability to be uncomfortable with the discomfort that this causes. You need to be able to look at somebody who is maybe a big donor and say, actually, our principles mean that we can't take this money if you're going to take the, if you're only going to give us this money with the condition that we have to shut up these particular groups, right? Um, Those are the kinds of things that are actually needed in terms of support. Uh, Professors who teach this kind of thing need to teach this kind of stuff and also see it as valuable to the um, tenure and promotion committees, right? Or whoever is hiring, right? It's not just a side gig. It's important. It takes a lot of energy. Um, It's not R1 journal research writing. It's like, but it's just as labor intensive, right? Could that be seen, you know, as something that is is not just a side thing, but is as important to the evaluation of their, their promotion, right? Or their value to the institution. That's not always the case. Right. Those are the kinds of institutional things that need more movement and support. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, that was great. Um, you dropped a bar in there without even realizing it. Your response ability is your responsibility. I'm going to mm. leave you with that. Mm. Yeah, that okay. was good. That was good. You, didn't, you didn't even realize you dropped that. Um, <laughs> so, but before we transition into something fun, yes, um, I want to ask just real quick. What are you, what are things that you're doing to prioritize your wellness as an educator? Like, what are like some practices that have really worked for you as far as prioritizing your wellness and doing this work? Thank you for asking that question. I think that question is increasingly important, and it's a question I didn't take that seriously until maybe maybe three or four years ago. Um, and I one thing that I do, I've I've moved to really prioritize rest um, and I've, I've uh, at my college at McDaniel, you know, I've taken to doing what I call rest Wednesdays. I did started this last semester. I'm doing it this semester. And what that is, is like, it's an hour where I say, I am resting when I'm on campus. I'll like go outside to the courtyard when it's nice. 
<laughs> excuse me, I'll go outside to the courtyard when it's nice. I'll set up a hammock. I've got a little sign that's like reserved for loitering. And I always bring an extra chair in case somebody wants to join me. Uh, but it's like, I just, just a time where it's like, this is not, I might be at work, but I'm not working, right? I might be at work, but like, this is me, like just taking time to nap or to process. Uh, just think, just enjoy the outdoors, which I hadn't been doing um, as a professor up until that point. And this was birthed out of my sabbatical actually um, last year, but being more intentional about that, um, I think that in a hustle and bustle culture that is the West, that is US American, uh, we have a lot of conversation around wellness, but the conversations around wellness are quickly lining up with capitalism, right? Wellness industry is buy this class, buy this app, you know, go to this retreat. Um, when really, and this is absolutely 100% inspired by the work of Trisha Hersey, um, who has a book called Rest is Resistance and um, has an Instagram called The Nap Ministry. Uh, but her, her offering that has resonated with me deeply is you can rest right now. Rest is always available to you. And for you to be intentional about the times where you find rest creates more uh, flexibility and freedom for you actually to sustain this kind of work. But really it's not even about the work, it's just about you as a person, right? Like we can't even imagine something differently if we're too tired to, to think about a different way to do things. And that's how I was feeling. I was feeling super tired. Um, and when I became more intentional about resting, like really disconnecting and thinking about what that means, like for me, scrolling Instagram is not actually rest, right? Like my brain is still engaged. I'm still like really processing, uh, you know, watching TV for me even is not rest. Um, it's, it's like a device of distraction. I was like, but when I actually like shut those things out and, and be like, I'm going to take a 45 minute nap or whatever. Uh, I feel rejuvenated, right? Like I just feel more ready to engage. I feel more ready to um, uh, to be more creative with my planning. And that's, like I said, that's how I have found rest, but other people might find rest in different ways. Again, this is about intention from my perspective, um, taking the time to do what you call rest or to experiment with what you call rest is so important. And when I started doing this on campus, um, there are people in high positions of power, I won't call their names out, who would like come and then they would look at me and they would say, I don't know what to do. This is weird. Like, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit here. I was like, yeah, you just sit here, <laughs> rest. You know, my only rule, my only rule was no screens and no chit chat because like in a work environment, it could quickly turn to like, oh, what progress do you have going on? Like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the people come and they sit down. And so they're like. <laughs> they can't even relax. They can't even, they can't even. Some people, the first time they come, they're like, uh, I can only do this for 15 minutes. And I'm like, okay, I appreciate 15 minutes. Yeah. And then they go yeah. on about their way. But also for them, that's a reminder that they have not practiced really resting. Right. If it feels so uncomfortable, then it's like your body is not used to it. Right. And so I've been trying to get my body more used to just relaxing. And I've been able to get into a relaxed mode more quickly the longer I practice doing it. So 
that's a long way to say like I rest <laughs> and I'm intentional yeah. about it. Yeah, you disruptively rest. I because right? that's disruptive yes. to this yes. right. Yes. And and I love that you you've come to a place where you could publicly display it. Because I feel like even if because I've even talked to faculty at Georgetown that like deeply engaged in the well-being work of students and like really care like they're trying out all these things but I know they wouldn't set up a hammock anywhere on campus or really show that side of themselves to students and so again it's like humanizing yourself yeah and because I'm sure the number of students that have seen you rest that's also inspired them to rest in little ways like even if they don't sit next to you yep. in a hammock i'm sure the number of students that have either taken a class with you or or not right they see you resting on campus as a department chair and as like a faculty member it's like wow if dr watley can prioritize her rest then how can i do that for myself too that's 100 percent that's 100 percent yeah. yeah well thank you for answering that uh we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back we've got a fun little game called this or that yay if you want to equip your students with the skills needed to create a positive school culture, then I want to tell you about Self Talks. Self Talks is the student success program that is transforming high school and college students throughout the country. You might be familiar with social emotional learning programs or career readiness curriculum, but what makes Self Talks unique is how it combines content on academic success, equity and inclusion, student leadership, and mental health for students. Students might learn effective study strategies but what if mental health struggles are stopping them from becoming academically engaged? They might earn leadership opportunities or student employment positions, but what frameworks are they learning to build programs and initiatives that serve all students in the school community? That is why having conversations about how success, equity, leadership, and flourishing intersect is so important. And the research shows that when students are thriving in all of these areas, it leads to personal well-being as well as their professional success after graduation. Self-Talks is fully customizable to your school or district's needs. There's no cookie-cutter content, and every Self-Talk starts with a needs assessment with your leaders to remove your specific barriers to student success. There are no boring lectures, it's PBIS and Castle aligned, and it's informed by the science of teaching and learning, the stuff that actually works. So if you're looking to take your students to new heights this semester, visit jdspeaks.com slash self-talks. All right, and we are back. Uh, and this is going to be our very first installment of This or That, and it is Black Film Edition. Dr. Watley is a Black film scholar, uh, extraordinaire and so we're gonna we're gonna put that to the test or not even necessarily put it to the test but we're gonna see where her interest is okay okay, okay. Um, and so i'm gonna name two films and mm -hmm. you have to choose this or that um we're gonna start with wait now. wait i need specifics what am i choosing it for like your personal preference if my personal preference one okay yes that's your favorite okay yep, that's right. okay that's helpful thank you all right um Love and basketball or like Mike? Love and basketball. Okay. Like Mike right. is but like Mike is a little uh I was a little bit older when Like Mike came out. So like I just mm -hmm. have a stronger affinity to love and basketball. And it's like one of the only rom coms that I can tolerate. Wow. <laughs> but also yeah, I'm a basketball I also am a basketball person. And so like, 
yeah, uh, loving basketball, absolutely, hands down. Got you, got you. Um, better Denzel performance. So this is a qualifier here. So better Denzel performance, okay. Ray or Malcolm X? Wait, Ray is Jamie Foxx. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> we will be cutting that one out because I can't be I can't be on the pod talking about Ray or Malcolm X. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So that's Jamie Foxx. Because I was thinking before the show, like, who what has Denzel played in? Yeah, um, yeah. You I mean okay. I mean, you could say training day or not train training day or um I don't know. What's he training day is his other like super iconic one. Uh or man Let's on do fire. Training Day or Malcolm X, though. What it, between those two? Because Malcolm X was definitely Denzel, right? Yes. Yeah. Malcolm X or Training Day? I would say Malcolm X. Malcolm X is iconic. Uh, yes. Training Day. I'm still irritated by the role that he had to play to get the Oscar that he got. That he mm. had to play a, you know, given all the roles that he had done. Uh, but absolutely, Malcolm X. Yeah, Malcolm X. Cool. Big Mama's House or the Medea series? Neither. <laughs> I think I well, now that you say that, I think I remember you expressing your gripe with <laughs> these kinds of films in our um media analysis and criticism class. Just a yes. quick sentence on why. Why neither? Uh I have so many thoughts. I'll give you two. All right. The first is that um, I'm I'm really I am increasingly uncomfortable with men who make a lot of content out of making fun of black women uh, by caric- being a caricature of them. Uh, it's a genre of comedy that. I don't know, it's always perplexing to me and I don't really like it. Also, when I think about it in relationship to how people talk about drag in the queer community, they never include those com- they never include those kind of depictions. Like nobody talks about bes- well, <laughs> besides Cat Williams, nobody talks about <laughs> nobody talks about um Tyler Perry as a drag queen, right? Uh but he, it is it's he's doing drag right um and so like the separation that people make with like this version of men de- dressing up as women is like acceptable is churchy is uh at home in the black community but like a rejection of the drag that is actually birthed directly from and is performed by people who are part of the queer community is rejected or is seen as more um like sketchy like something to be wary of uh yeah i don't like it i don't like it although i've seen many tales i've seen many of them a deer movie i have seen the first big mama's house i've you know i've seen i've seen plenty of these films growing up uh and yeah i'll leave i'll leave it at that but if i had to choose i'm choosing i'm choosing either respect no i hear that um, get out or us. Get out. Get out. Mm. Get out, change the game. Get out, change the game. Get out is uh yeah, it's just it changed how horror 
is talked about, created, and received, and get out pushed me towards understanding the, or having a deeper appreciation for what horror can do specifically for telling stories about Blackness. And as somebody who was very standoffish towards horror, I've actually um, have a growing love for horror that has a really specific social commentary. Because I think it's a really good storytelling device to talk about how, um, how tragic, how frightening, how disturbing the um, social injustices that have happened towards Black people have been historically. And like, you know, all the biopics, all the dramas uh, of the reality of that reflected in one way, but to do it with horror is to ramp it up. And that's actually more reflective of the experiences of Black people in the U.S. Mm. Yeah, that was beautiful. Um, thank you for that. And I have two very distinct memories of watching Get Out. One, as a high school student in 2016, and then, like, in the theater, mm-hmm. as it, like when it first came mm-hmm. out. And then the other, in an interracial relationship with a white woman, like, a couple months into our relationship. Mm-hmm. And, like, that was a fascinating experience, Ooh. too. So, yeah, get, get Out resonates with me, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, last one, Insecure or Abbott Elementary? that's hard but i'm going with insecure because i have a uh i have a really strong affinity for Issa ray uh her she's the creator of insecure and the star of it uh and i've followed her career since she was doing the web series misadventures of awkward black girl when i was in my master's program uh i wrote about that web series for my very first like published piece of academic writing. And um, she, with Insecure, Insecure insecure allowed space for Abbott Elementary and Quinta Brunson for sure, right? To like be on network TV, um, to have a depiction depiction of a sort of quirky, awkward black woman with um, Janine Teague's character in Abbott, Abbott Elementary, but Issa Rae with Insecure, which is uh, a version of the character that she played in the web series that she had. I had never seen a Black woman like that. And I feel more like that awkward, insecure version of Black femininity than some of the more familiar depictions in TV and cinematic history. And so, again, I feel like Issa Rae um, laid the groundwork and broke the ceiling for that kind of depiction where a Black woman doesn't have to be strong. She doesn't have to be, um, you know, overly sexy. She doesn't have to just have an attitude um, and like this other lane. And that um, was actually really formative in my development as like an academic. So Insecure holds like a really special place in my heart. That's awesome. And you uh you put me on the insecure through your class. I had oh, never really? watched it. In, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good one. Uh it's I think it's now streaming on Netflix, so it's even more accessible for people. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. huge. Yeah, it's even more accessible for people than it was when it was just on HBO, but such a good series. Um so many things that could be said about it. It's 
absolutely a era or it's a part of the era of what I would call like a black film and TV renaissance, which I kind of fear we're, we might be slipping out of right now. Uh, that's a whole other conversation, but um, Insecure, fantastic. And to know the choices that Issa made with how she put that show together and the starts, the fits and starts that it had, um, like she tried to have that show or have a show for a while before it actually got made, but she wanted to make it the way she did. And her philosophy of networking with people who are on her same level, like not having to just get people who are higher ups. I just think there's like an integrity. I think there is a um, a realness with her storytelling. I'm just a fan. I'm just a fan. I could talk about Issa Rae for a long time. I can, I can hear the fan. I, I know. I know. I'm, just, I'm just fangirling. I'm just fangirling. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just. Have you, have you seen Issa Rae in person before? No. Have you been to a thing? Okay. I haven't. I haven't. I've been within one degree of separation. I've had a interactions with somebody who she has worked with, um, but I have not met her directly. And I don't know what I would do. I I feel like it's a little bit like because we're. I feel like we're both kind of like awkwardy blacky. You know, like I don't. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't feel like I could have what I would want as a fan like i just want to be her friend you know what i mean but like that's a weird thing to say anyways i'm gonna stop i'm gonna embarrass myself i'm gonna embarrass myself no. like, i'm just like i said i'm just a fan i respect i respect her hustle i respect her as a person i respect the way that she moves um there's just so much about the way that she creates uh and like the offshoots of her creation that i think are a blueprint when we're talking about the entertainment industry um i'll stop there that was fantastic what a what a fun way to to end on yes um, thank you thank, thank you so much for your time and the, the great conversation before we go uh, can you tell the people a little bit about intersect consulting what you have going on in your consulting work sure uh intersect consulting is a deij focused consulting company where i offer um, a range of services in relationship to uh cultural diversity facilitation and curation. So if you are interested or in the need for having a dialogue related um, training or experience, Intersect Consulting can be here to help with that. Um, training for small groups, for um, nonprofits, organizations I've worked with, uh, also curation, Jordan mentioned the Black American Film Festival, which I've done for two years uh, in collaboration with the Carroll Arts Center, uh, curating fantastic Black content, honestly, is just something that I do for fun. And with that film festival, even much like my classes, it's not just about watching the film. We have conversation related to it. I bring in other voices to provide other perspectives. So if you want some sort of curated media experience, uh, Intersect Consulting does that as well. And also I evaluate media. So if you have a book or a website or um, some sort of uh, multimedia content and you want a second set of eyes, I act as an editor to take a look and say, you know, here's where uh, you might want to make some adjustments around the cultural representation in this content before you actually publish it, uh, I provide those services as well. So yeah, Intersect Consulting LLC dot, oh wait, let me say the website correctly. It is 
intersect consult llc.com uh, and maybe jordan can drop the link too when he puts the podcast out but that's me that's what we do that's my side absolutely i got you I get. Yeah, yeah 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 thanks dr wiley thank you again i appreciate it that was been a pleasure jordan thank you so much uh yeah i appreciate you thank you of course this has been help students win and we'll talk to you next week thank you